Welcome to another edition of Upon Further Review, Frontline Conversations with Dean Bobo. My name is Larry Bobo, the Dean of Social Sciences here at Harvard University. I'm delighted to have uh, with me as a guest uh, for this discussion, uh, Frank Dobbin, who is the Henry Ford II Professor of the Social Sciences in the Department of Sociology, and who is co-author of the really important new book, Getting to Diversity, What Works and What Doesn't. And um, before turning to that, let me say first, welcome, Frank. Thank you for agreeing uh, uh, to be a part of this session. Oh, thanks for having me, Larry. Oh, really, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure. And before kind of leaping into the substance of, of the book itself, I think I would tell uh, our listeners just a little bit about you that, that in many respects, you could be described as a sociologist of organizations, as an economic sociologist, and that indeed, in some ways, early in your career, had more of a comparative focus to it, right? Uh, indeed. <laughs> that that's where you started. So then how do we get the transition to studying um, workplace diversity issues with a special focus on the U.S.? How do you get there? Well, this is something I've always been interested in. Uh, I grew up during the civil rights movement and paid a lot of attention to it. My parents were big um, on going to to social movement protests, so civil rights movement when I was very small, and then anti-war movement, women's movement. Um, so from pretty early age, I had the impression that the world was going was going to be revolutionized by the civil rights movement, and um, I didn't really see that happening. You know, I grew up here in Boston in a suburb, and uh, wow, the what happened during the school uh, desegregation busing mess of those years, the, the level of racial strife. It sure didn't look like the civil rights movement had changed a lot. And then fast forward to when I began graduate school, um, in the first year or two I was working on a project with some other people on how firms responded to uh, equal opportunity affirmative action legislation. And what was interesting there is the things they were doing, even then, and and this was with Lauren Edelman and uh, Ann Swidler, John Meyer, Dick Scott. Even then, it didn't really look like the things that companies were doing were going to have any effect on um, promoting equality of opportunity. So that I did a bunch of studies over the years of what firms did and why. And every study I did, my thinking was that the study was about look at the ridiculous things firms think are going to fix this problem now. What's what's going to be next? But um, a lot of people and the courts tended to buy what companies were doing. So that got um, that realization got me and Sandra Kalev about 20 years ago to start this now very long-term project, yes. uh, trying to understand what kinds of diversity programs are effective and what kinds aren't. That's great. So this intellectual arc to uh, your, your, your work here, but would you also have thought of yourself as a sociologist of race, a sociologist of gender, or just kind of more incidentally as those things figure into workplace dynamics? And I'll tell you part of why I'm asking that question. It's because early on in the book, you suggest that the types of issues sociologists focus on or how they frame the key questions for their work have undergone an important change. 
that there was an era where the, the question really was about to what extent can people translate their individual human capital characteristics into attainments in the workforce, into occupational mobility and, and better earnings. And you suggest that there's now been an important shift in analytical focus. So maybe you can tell me a bit about that shift and uh, what the implications are for directing your work. Well, I think there's been a really important shift from the early mobility studies, which just looked at individual characteristics like educational attainment and its effects on social mobility, on income, and um, positional mobility, occupational mobility from generation to generation. Um, now we're looking at, increasingly, since the early 1980s, at um, the organizational factors that shape mobility for people by gender, race, and ethnicity. And people hadn't been looking at that before. So uh, some of my earliest work with, was with Jim Barron when he was at the uh, business school at Stanford where I did my PhD in the sociology department. And he very early on with Bill Bealby had recognized that uh, a lot of what's going on in producing inequality by race, gender, and ethnicity was within the organization, within the firm. And so we needed to really pay attention to organizational factors, not just human capital factors, skills, uh, uh, experience on the job, uh, parental education, things like that. So I feel like there's been a very radical change in the way we think about mobility and where, where people end up in life, people's life chances. And I do consider myself to be a sociologist of race and gender, mostly because I feel like that's the organization is where a lot of the action has been in the last 40 years, a lot of the research action. And, um, and that's where I've been focused. Uh, if you want to understand where people end up, you kind of need, need to understand what happens to them when they start work, not just before they start work. No, that's great. And so that really does set the stage, I think, for uh, the, the questions you pose and the research you, you report on in getting to diversity. Let me then ask about two ways in which I think of the book, not so much as, as startling, but as potentially contradicting many individuals' priors, some of their starting uh, assumptions. And those two assumptions, just to state them directly, are as follows. First, that we've had a lot of compelling work done regarding the existence of um, implicit attitudes or unconscious bias that uh, can affect human behavior in many different settings, including what is likely to happen in workplace organizations. Therefore, it makes a great deal of sense to attend to uh, some way of remedying unconscious bias. And secondly, that coming out of the civil rights era, coming out of affirmative action, we've seen a real growth in uh, an African-American middle class, presumably a growing Latinx middle class, uh, and uh, likewise an, an Asian-American uh, middle class. Uh, haven't we seen a lot of progress uh, in the workplace? And it seems to me that your book starts off by attempting to problematize both of those prior assumptions. Uh, indeed, 
So um, when it comes to trying to fix unconscious bias, um, one of the well, the first thing we tackle in the book is um, are our strategies for fixing unconscious bias working? And our strategies kind of fall into three buckets. We try to train away unconscious bias. Uh, we try to regulate away unconscious bias by putting in HR personnel rules that prevent managers from acting on bias, prevent them from discriminating. And um, the third thing we do is we implement complaint and grievance systems that are supposed to address bias in individual managers. They're supposed to either make them better or move them out of the organization. And um, what we're seeing in our data analysis, where we look at um, about 830 companies over about 45 years, and we look at all of the practices they put into place, and we do some statistical magic to figure out what the individual effects of those practices are on average. And uh, the things in these three buckets don't work. They, in fact, tend to backfire. So putting people in a room or putting them online and trying to convince them that they're biased and they need to change how they've been behaving, that, does, that doesn't just do nothing. It systematically reduces the race, ethnic, gender, uh, diversity of the managerial workforce, the jobs that are hardest to change. Same for bureaucratic rules. So, for example, job tests or performance evaluations, those are supposed to, they're supposed to prevent managers from promoting, hiring people uh, just on the basis of friendship or race, gender, and they, um, they actually backfire as well. And grievance procedures backfire in some of the most egregious ways because, as we know, um, uh, those of us in the, who've been studying grievance procedures know, uh, as Don Tomaskovic-Devi has found recently, if you file a complaint with the federal government, you're about 16% about chance of having uh, a positive outcome. And over 60% of people who file those complaints lose their jobs as a consequence. So, and that's true at the, at the workplace level, too. If you use the company grievance procedure, you're pretty likely to lose your job and leave, and often you'll take a bunch of your friends with you who realize that the organization is not really on their side. So, unfortunately, those things, which are the most common go-to solutions for companies um, and the things that consultants have been hawking for years, they don't just do nothing. They have adverse effects. The second part of the question was about a growth yeah. in, in uh, well, social mobility for and growth in, uh, let's say, a, a, a minority middle class and of, of women moving into ranks. Say, yep. you know, we think of the kind of transformation that may have taken place in the, in the legal profession as, as one sign. Yeah, um, it is interesting to look at uh, change over time especially if you think about um, the changing educational attainment of women and black, Hispanic, and Asian American populations over time. The um, edu educational attainment has really skyrocketed for white women and for all of those minoritized groups. 
but we're not seeing that reflected in the managerial workforce in corporate America. Now we see it, we see a little more of it in some places. The military does slightly better. Some of the professions do a little better. Although, you know, if you talk to David Wilkins over in the law school and look at the research that his team and others in that field who were looking at the careers of um, black lawyers, for example, if you look at that research, it's not looking like progress is, is happening very quickly. What we see in corporate America is that uh, a lot of the lower level jobs have been dramatically diversified uh, in the last 40 years. So entry-level positions, technician jobs, um, operator jobs. But when you look at management jobs, they really haven't been diversified very rapidly. Now, within a firm, you're going to see growth, for example, in black managers in a medium-sized large firm. But... Um, if you look at the likelihood that black women or black men in corporate America will get into management jobs, um, about 4% of black women were managers in corporate America. 4% of all people in corporate America who were black women were managers in 1985. And in 2018, it was about 5%. So that is very slow growth. During that period, white men, about 16% of them were in management jobs. So, I mean, that is such slow growth that it'll be hundreds of years before those lines converge. Um, black men were at 6% in 1985, and they're at 6% in the last year we have data for, 2018. So... Yeah, there are more black people in corporate America. That's partly because of immigration. It's partly from the Caribbean especially. It's partly because of reduced discrimination in for entry-level jobs, operative jobs, technician jobs, clerical jobs. But black Americans, men and women, are not much more likely to make it into management than they were 40 years ago. Let and me that focus is discouraging. On, that's, that's very discouraging. That's part of why I wanted to stop there, because you, you show a figure very early in the book. It may be the very first figure on this trend uh, in um, the intersection of race and gender in terms of representation in uh, management level positions. And I think, if I'm recalling it correctly, there is some slight progress between the early 70s and, say, roughly 1980. And it looks like gaps are are narrowing. And then essentially from that point forward, it's at best flat. Uh, and and if there's any change, it's maybe a slight drop in the the heavy, let's say, overrepresentation of of white males uh, mm. in that in that category. And I know it isn't the focus of what you do, but I would I would love to hear what you might say about what accounts for the timing of that uh, inflection, kind of what what, brings the halt to what looked like an era of progress prior to, say, 1980, 1985? Well, something momentous happens in 1980. Uh, Ronald Reagan is elected, and he's elected on a platform of eliminating red tape. You'll recall that the economy had been in kind of tough shape in the 70s. So 
two of his goals were to decimate the EEOC. He did appoint Clarence Thomas to head the EEOC and um, to close the OFCCP, the part of the Department of Labor that enforces affirmative action regulations for federal contractors. So business got the message that there was no more sheriff in town, not just that there was a new sheriff in town. And uh, it looks like they just stopped paying so much attention to trying to make change. Now, in the 60s and 70s, we did see pretty rapid growth on the same indicator, representation and management, but it just goes flat, almost flat for those four groups, black and Hispanic men and women. It, so th progress is a little bit better for Asian Americans. They're, both men and women are, are still making some progress. But keep in mind that um, through the H-1B visa program and immigration regulations in gen general, Asian Americans who came to the U.S. often were very highly educated. So if you look at the progress that Asian Americans have made, they're not really where they should be compared to whites. They should be doing as well in, in getting management jobs as whites are, and they're not. And white women made a lot of progress as late as the late 1990s, but since then they've been almost flat. So I feel like we have a lot of we have a lot of, a long way to go for all of these groups, for all seven historically disadvantaged groups. And you know, in in the data, we're not able to look at smaller groups like Native Americans. There just aren't enough of them um, to to make our our statistical models work. But before I shift gears a little, let let, let me ask about um, something that's often discussed in this arena, and that's a need for you know cultural change or transformation. Uh, within an organization. And I know it's not something I, I read as being a, a real focus of your work, but how does so much discourse around bringing about greater diversity in the workforce perhaps get get focused on that sort of ambition? And, and perhaps, I, and let me be a little bit reductive, with that culture transformation focusing heavily around what I think you would have labeled as diversity training um, as as part of what needs to happen. It may be to a degree anti-harassment work um, as well. I think the problem here is with how we've been structuring both diversity training and anti-harassment training. The problem with diversity training is that the most common form has kind of two components. The first component is to try to convince you that you are biased, even though it might be unconscious. And people don't respond too well to that. And there have been lots of studies showing that people walk out of the, those rooms where they're just introduced to implicit bias material, angry or frustrated or disbelieving. Um, and then the second component is to convince you that what you've been doing has been against the law and you need to stop it. So the most common form of diversity training today is anti-bias with legalistic con content. Um, and people just respond negatively to that. It does not bring them on board. So it's clear that if you want to make cultural change in organizations, that will change the culture, but not in the way you had intended. Um, because it just, it angers people. 
and there are just so many studies that show that. And, and our evidence, our our analyses suggest the same. Um, the typical form that sexual harassment training takes for the general population is kind of similar in that um, you're told that you don't know what harassment is, so you better learn what it is. And then you're told, you're given a list of things you can't do, things that are against the law. And for a lot of men, those are things, some of the things are things they have been doing at work. And so people, the psychological studies show that people who are not on board with the idea that harassment is a problem at work, white men, uh, they've, they're antagonized by this kind of training. And they, for example, become less likely to believe people who file complaints because they think the whole thing is BS. So these approaches are, are changing culture, but they're not changing culture in the right way. Uh, and there, there are some ways to tweak both kinds of training. Um, training that's only about cultural inclusion. We're not trying to convince you you're biased. We're not trying to tell you that you've been breaking the law. We're just going to talk to you about how, as a manager, you could be more inclusive by listening to your employer employees more often, by asking employees how they feel about changes in the workplace, by including employees in decision making, all the things that would that that promote cultural inclusion. If those are included in the training, the training works better and can actually have some positive effects. So it's not that there's no good way to do training. It's just that we're not doing it. When it comes to harassment training, the kind that most managers get is actually showing some positive effects. But harassment training for managers is different than what I described before, which is just here's what harassment is and here's what you can't do anymore. It's, it's about how, as a manager, you might be able to change your workplace to reduce harassment. And uh, one of the main takeaways is if you think harassment is going on, don't put your head in the sand. Get out in front of it. Talk to the people you think might be involved and try to resolve the problem immediately because um, the message that people get from legalistic harassment training is, one strike and you're not out. You have to have three instances of um, hostile environment harassment to take somebody to through the grievance procedure. So a lot of managers are just sort of waiting. Is that bad enough? How long do I have to wait before I get involved? Um, interestingly, if you train managers to be kind of allies and rather than... Um, treating them, them themselves as the accused for not preventing harassment from the get-go. Uh, they seem to have positive attitudes and they seem to learn that they can intervene if they think something wrong, is, something bad is going on. Part of uh, your lexicon for an antidote to the, the the missteps of intervention efforts in the past is to call for a democratization of career systems. So um, 
what do you mean by the democratization of, of career systems and kind of how far into the culture of corporate America has that idea progressed, would you say? There are some firms that do this. Um, Deloitte started in the 1990s to try to um, open up their career systems to women in particular because the, the heads of the firm realized that half of the new recruits, professionals in accounting and consulting, they hired were women, but they weren't promoting any of them to partner, and that was just a crazy way. They were basically training people for their competitors. That was just a crazy way to run a business. So, um, so they're a good example. They did a lot of the things that we find to be effective. So most companies, most people in most companies who are at the top and middle ranks define their company as meritocratic. People will defend their company from the get-go. You know, we're fair. We, we never make biased decisions. Everybody has a chance to get ahead here. And I, I think people genuinely believe that. We do a lot of interviews as well as looking at quantitative data. And we, we hear that time and again. But when those same people start to investigate where there are problems, and one way they can investigate where there are problems is to join a diversity task force, or often they're just asked by the CEO to join the task force, they come together and look at the data, and if they have the HR information systems data that most companies collect, they can track what happens to people's careers, people from different backgrounds, so they can look at an incoming cohort of whatever consultants or um, analysts in, in investment banking. They can look at an incoming cohort and they can see what happens to people. And um, they start to see that some people uh, get counseled out of trying to go for partner or they start some kinds of people or they start to see that a certain group just isn't being recruited. And so they often they begin to see that parts of the career system aren't democratic, that is, aren't open to everybody. So what we look at specifically in the book are recruitment. Um, so firms often have formal recruitment systems. Most big companies have had them since the 30s or 40s, where they go to universities to look for new recruits every year. They tend to go to the alma maters of existing managers. So if your existing managers are white men, you're going to be going to historically white institutions. And while those institutions may now um, be open to all groups, you're not going to find the kinds of black people you're going to find if you go to historically black institutions. You're not going to find the numbers of Hispanic people you'll find if you go to Hispanic-serving institutions. So just doing that has a huge effect on subsequent managerial diversity. So these people are being hired as rookies. They're not managers yet. But if you search at those schools, it makes a big difference. So, you know. Well, let me ask there. Let me pause mm -hmm. on that, that notion of, of how to, I guess we might say, democratize the recruitment strategies, as, as, as you put it, uh, the entryway uh, strategies. How do you get firms to do that? Or what is it that prompts firms to really engage in a transformation in their recruitment strategies? You know, um, it's been happening since the early 1960s. Firms have made a commitment to doing it. 
The problem is that when there's a recession, they usually stop doing it. Like they'll pull back on all recruitment. And then they'll have a kind of low cost. When they go back into recruitment, they'll have a kind of low cost strategy, which means just doing what they did before, which is going to the alma maters of their current managers, sending those people to their, their alma maters. Um, so some companies have had, you know, a cycle of doing this and not doing it. A lot of companies started doing it again after the murder of George Floyd with the, with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, companies report that it's pretty effective. They're, they are managing to, to diversify the, the recruits. The, the trick is to get all companies to do this just as part of regular recruiting, um, even if they don't think they have a racial diversity problem today, and, um, and getting them not to retrench when there's, whenever there's a recession. And uh, one, one of the other strategies you, you identify, um, and I can certainly see this, this operating in some of the organizations that, that I work with uh, outside of the university, is pushing folks to, as you put it, um, democratize networks mm. internally, that, mm. that things need to happen to, in particular, create the kind of mentoring opportunities and relationships that really do put people in line to move up in an organization. Yeah, that's another thing that, in, in a way, even formal recruitment programs are kind of informal because they just use the existing managers' networks. Mentoring programs are often completely informal or not completely democratic. When I say completely informal, I talked to CEOs today who say, um, yeah, I mean, we do a lot of mentoring. We don't have a formal program because we don't believe in forced artificial matches. People have to connect to somebody and they, you know, you see it in their eyes when you first meet them. This is a person like me. Well, you know, when you do that, when that's your principle, basically the white guys are going to get mentors and nobody else is. That's, that's what all the data show from many different studies. Um, so making a formal mentoring program that matches people and extending it to everybody. So another mistake that firms make is that the mentoring program is only for the talent that they see as promising. So when you only, when you only provide a mentoring program for people who are in the 3% of your top recruits, you're not going to get the person in, well, for one thing, you've, you're mentoring people who you've already decided are st superstars. Some companies do this, have a special mentoring program for people of color. Yeah, but there are 10 people in it every year, and there are 1,000 people of color working in the company. So how is that going to work? What, so what democratizing mentoring means is offering every single person in the firm, even if you don't think that they want to become a manager or an executive, Offering every single person a mentor, and, and you know what? People take them up on that. People are happy to do it. Can you unpack that a little bit more for me? Because I can think of the kind of struggles a CEO might have making key unit or division managers engage in that kind of mentoring activity. You know, you have someone who's saying, listen, I've got a bottom line. You know, I, I've got some goals I, I have to achieve time and energy are finite, 
And now you're going to tell me to go devote my time to, to someone who I don't know anything about. I'm not sure I can work with. And um, I can't necessarily predict with reasonable high probability that it's going to work. Um, how do organizations do that? You know, mentoring in, um, in the corporate world is much like mentoring in academia. So we mentor people all the time in yes. our jobs. Yes. And who gets more out of those relationships? It kind of depends on the particular relationship, but we get a lot. I've learned so many different computer programs, new modeling strategies, new theories by being somebody's mentor and having them say, wait, you got to read this. You don't know about this. Um, so this also occurs in organizations. And um, when I get that kind of pushback, when I'm trying to say you got to mentor everybody, I send people um, uh there are a couple of studies of Sun Microsystems internal mentoring program, very scientific studies. And so they do kind of before and after, and they're comparing people who have been involved in the programs to people who haven't. And it's kind of randomized, so it's not 100% randomized, but um, who you get is definitely randomized as a mentor or as a protege. And so the, the protégés see much faster career progression and much longer retention at the firm than people who could have been protégés but weren't. But the mentors see even bigger increases in or decreases in time to promotion and increases in retention. So joining a mentoring program is better for the mentors than it is for the protégés and it's good for everybody. Now there's that's good. Now, so I, my next question was going to be this exact question of exemplars that that kind of make the case that this really is an effective strategy. So I wonder how confident you are or or uh, unequivocal on this issue the research literature is on the beneficial effects of just pushing pushing ahead with a you know, kind of thoroughly democratized mentoring program. I mean, we see huge positive effects on managerial diversity after a company is put in a mentoring program. Um, the biggest or next to biggest effects depends on the industry of anything you could do. This is just one of the best things you can do. Um, I don't know of any study. I mean, there are a bunch of studies that show positive effects on the mentors. We have a we do a bunch of interviews, and in, in the interviews, people say, you know, this changed my life. I started to see the world differently. I learned new new strategies. I mean, I learned a, a lot about business strategy from my protege who just came out of business school or mm -hmm. just came out of computer science. So um, I, I don't see any evidence that this isn't a great idea, and. Uh, you know, but unfortunately, companies have been moving in this in this direction toward special mentoring for the high potentials. Yes, yes. People and so that's identified. it seems. It seems that that's but that's the cautious strategy, right? Uh, especially if you were anticipating some pushback, uh, even if it's not intense pushback, just some hesitation on the part of unit managers to do something that certainly will require a commitment of their time and energy and that they aren't a priori convinced is going to have a payoff for them. Yeah, um, I do think that uh, people who have some experience mentoring become champions in firms when a program gets put into place. Like they, what I see is they'll, they'll say to other people, don't worry about that, you're going to love it. 
And, you know, if you have enough people like that, I feel like usually CEOs don't have a lot of trouble getting this going. And one thing to keep in mind is you don't have to mention diversity at all. At all. So the thing, the thing about a wide open mentoring program is it's not a diversity program. It's a, it's a talent development program and it's a retention program. And the other thing that, you know, the other thing that some CEOs do is they show the retention numbers for, for companies that have put these programs in and they just, they skyrocket. Great. Let me, let me uh, move on to, to one of your other key, um, messages here, which is that it's important to democratize access to uh, kind of new skill and management training opportunities. Uh, so like mentoring in a lot of companies, um, skill training and management training are offered informally um, in, a, in a retailer. The, the shift manager will show somebody who's, who's a cashier how to how to do payroll or how to how to assign people to shifts, and then when they're out for a week, uh, that person will take over, and then next time there's an opening, they'll they'll become a shift manager. Uh, so, um, Walmart, for example, has has put in these training academies where, for one thing, they train everybody. So they train all the cashiers, even no, even knowing that there's high turnover in this industry, they train all the cashiers so they do a better job. So turnover is reduced. So that program pays for itself right away. Um, they also have supervisory training for people who are interested in it. And you can sign up for that. So it hasn't been going on forever, but in the first few iterations, and of course COVID has interrupted it, but... In the first few years of it, it looked like it was dramatically increasing people of color who um, move into management jobs or first-line supervisory jobs. So any kind of training that's open to everybody um, will do two things. It will tell people that you're committed to them, that you're going to invest some money in their improving skills, which means you want them to stay around. And so when somebody gets a dollar more offer from a competing employer in the same town, they're going to stick with you because they think, well, yeah, I could get a dollar more an hour. I could wait and be promoted to, to a supervisory position. But another thing that any kind of training does is as long as it's done by internal managers, it broadens people's networks. So people get to know a manager in a different department who's doing like the payroll part of the, the training. They get to know somebody in accounting and maybe if they're good with numbers, they end up in accounting. Often training programs either rotate people through departments or rotate managers through the training curriculum. And uh, you know, one of the problems we face in, in the workplace today is a workplace can be very integrated in the aggregate but at the department level, we're just looking at silos of people who look the same. HR tends to be women of color. Finance tends to be white and Asian men. Um, you go down the list, logistics tends to be men of color. So getting people outside of their normal groups is one way to, we know that contact across groups is one of the best ways to reduce bias. Um, so 
any kind of training that mixes people up is likely to help people find a career path um, that appeals to them and also make connections to managers in other places who can serve as informal manners or keep an eye out for a job for them. Let's uh, turn to the fourth arena for democratization, and that uh, concerns a corporate approach to or the business organization's approach to the work-life balance and how things can be done to better facilitate both retention and prospects for promotion when you're very mindful about those work-life balance issues. Well, um, as in these other domains, uh, work-life balance is often uh, – the, the supports are often offered informally. So if you're – even if your organization doesn't have a formal parental leave program, doesn't have a formal flex time program or a formal child care program, those are the three main kinds of work-life programs that people desire in surveys um, – if you happen to be the right-hand person of the CEO, you're going to get whatever you need when you have a, a new baby at home or when you have an ailing parent because uh, they want to keep you around. They're going to do whatever they can. And you don't even have to ask for it sometime. You know, take an extra six weeks off. I think you're going to need it. We'll pay for it. Uh, the problem is that when companies don't A, make programs formal and make them sound like they're rights, like you have a right to ask for this, and also get the, the word out to supervisors that it would be good for people to use this program, like to use flex time or use parental leave. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help with retention. It's going to make them committed to us. They're not going to leave for a silly reason because, because we did something for them. We tried to make it work for them. So there's an interesting study uh, in a book overloaded by um, Aaron Kelly and Phyllis Moen. Uh, Kelly's at MIT Sloan School, Moen's in sociology at Minnesota. And they look, they do a kind of random controlled trial in a, a Fortune 500 company where the main intervention, the company already has some work-life programs, people aren't using them. The main intervention is to try to get managers to see that it's a good idea to let people use them and that this is company policy, that we want people to use these programs, that they're there to be used. And they see dramatic reductions in stress, increases in retention, increases in performance. I mean, it's just, it's just good business to provide these things to people who are struggling because those struggles are, they're not permanent. People have small kids or um, one of their kids gets sick, their spouse gets sick. For a few months, they're, they have a parent who's dying. Um, they're going to be back, but uh, in the short term, providing some kind of support really helps to retain people, and that helps them to be promoted. So what we see is that uh, even the cheapest forms of each of these interventions, so just having a flex time policy that says you can ask your boss for flex time, they don't have to say yes, Having a parental leave policy that is simply 
Um, this is what the federal, this is what the Fed, uh, Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993 guarantees you: three months of unpaid leave if you have a, if you have a baby. Um, here's how you apply. That's what that's what the policy is. Just that. Here's how you apply. Um, has huge effect on not only white women and all groups of women of color, but all groups of men of color. And the main reason for that is because uh, white couples are more likely to be able to afford for one person to go part-time for a while or to stop working for a while. Um, black, Latinx, and Asian American couples have less wealth and lower incomes on average. So when stuff happens and they're having trouble balancing everything, uh, somebody's likely to change jobs just to find a job that's closer to work. Um, and if there's some flexibility, you might be able to keep them in the job. So here, people don't see work-life programs as a racial equity yeah, but it clearly intervention, is. But, but it, it's yeah. a huge racial equity yeah. intervention. And if you really care about um, improving the lot of men and women of color, it's one of the first things you should be paying attention to. Exactly. Uh, toward the end of the book, you talk about principles that should be guiding organizational thinking here. Um, and uh, you use the phrase that, that in order to really make diversity work, um, these processes in a way have to become baked in to the way an organization functions. So what is it, what is it they're trying to bake in? Just what are the principles in effect? And then I have a separate question, which is how do we get there? What's the spark? What makes this happen uh, in an organization? Well, in terms of how to break, how to bake this in, one of the most effective things you can do is to create a permanent task force that looks at this, looks at the data every couple months, comes up with solutions to the pressing problem of the moment. So it might be recruitment of Hispanic women. It might be promotion of uh, white women. After a second child, after they have their second child, it might be, look, it looks like we're hemorrhaging people of color after they've been here for eight years, and it seems like we're not promoting them at the same rates that we're promoting whites, and that's why they leave. So how are we going to fix that? Um, companies that, that create a permanent task force, usually, as I was saying before, usually the CEO asks department managers to either join the task force or nominate a lieutenant. They come together every two months, look at the data, brainstorm solutions, come up with solutions to these those particular problems, go back and implement them. Well let me let me ask then so what's the what's the charge of the task force? Because it sounds as if this is something very different from, say, helping to create what many firms are doing, which is, is let's say, uh, employee resource groups that are kind of a distinctive ethnic uh, uh, or sexual orientation or gender affinity groups is different from that. And it's different from um, or a piece of, depending on how you think about it, 
kind of routine HR uh, processes, right? I mean, what, what what's the charge, distinctive charge to the task force? Then? The charge is to try to solve the problem of stalled diversity. And exactly the problem that uh, I talked about at the, at the top of the hour. Um, most companies, if they look at their own data, they've seen very little progress in management diversity. If, you, if, if by management diversity you mean what's the likelihood a black woman in this company will be in management, that hasn't changed even if there are more black women in the company. So if that is the challenge, and increasingly companies are taking that to be the challenge, um, then it's an ongoing problem and there isn't a single solution because you'll solve the recruitment program problem for Hispanics, say, and then three years later, you'll realize, oh, now, now the problem is retention. We did something wrong here. So what do we need to do now? It's, so now you have to solve the next step of the problem. We're not like they're not signing up for mentors. Why is that, the people we've recruited in this, in this in, through the targeted recruitment? So it's an ongoing process. And, you know, if this were any other issue in the organization, it would be treated managerially. So if it's product development, you don't, develop, you don't have product development once and then go home. That's a unit, right? And it's usually, it's usually a cross-unit team that's developing new products. And unless you're, in a, unless you're just making rice, the, any firm has a product development function. So we need a diversity management function that's focused on how do you op open opportunity to everybody across the life cycle, across the career cycle, and what do we need to fix next? So the, re so the, the single practice that works most consistently across industries and that has really big payoffs is putting in a task force like this because you, know, you can get consultants to come in and do this, but they're not gonna, they're gonna design solutions, but then they're gonna need to come back next year and design other solutions to other problems. And they're not gonna be able to take the solutions back to their departments and tell people, this is what we're doing now. So if it's targeted recruitment, you've got managers going back and saying, I need six people to sign up to go to Howard University next week. Uh, and I, we're not leaving this meeting until I have six names. So. Um, one of the things being on a task force does is it gets managers who are mostly white men to look at the data and to say to themselves, you know, it's not a meritocracy because we're doing something wrong. We're losing great talent. We're losing. So, so is the task force the vehicle to creating accountability? Is, is it the vehicle to, to do part of what you mentioned may be critical here, which is really set goals, fairly explicit outcomes that, that you're out to obtain? Task forces do tend to set goals, although they're not always formal goals. Um, what's been happening since the murder of George Floyd, it was starting to happen in tech maybe 10 years earlier, but is that um, more companies are setting explicit goals from the top. That is, the CEO is in on that. And... Um, and uh, some companies are pushing those goals down to the manager level so that individual managers have goals. You know, companies manage everything with goals. 
you know, you've got like a cost reduction target, you've got a reduction in force target, you've got a profit increase target, you've got to decrease these expenses. Why wouldn't companies have specific goals here? Well, I can, I, I totally agree with that, but we are in a legal and political climate where the idea of racial or ethnic or I presume even gender targets are going to come into question to some degree, especially the racial ethnic ones, because they're viewed as such problematic categories under, let's say, the last 10 to 15 years of Supreme Court interpretations, right? I mean, what do we do in that legal climate or even a political climate where you have governors and state legislatures almost banning use of the term equity? <laughs> um, it, it's a big problem obviously. Um, in the last couple of years, companies have been willing to go out on a limb and to start to, so uh, something like, last time I looked, something like 300 of the biggest companies in the U.S. had started to publicize their progress so far in a detailed way, race by gender, ethnicity, um, by six job titles, 10 job categories, the, the EEOC data are 10, so some people just put that up online. They weren't doing that for a long time because they were worried about the legal consequences. Um, and they certainly were not publishing targets uh, because exactly they were worried about what the courts would do or they were worried about reverse discrimination suits. I, I mean, I think... Uh, it's encouraging that so many CEOs have said, you know what, damn the legal consequences, we're going to do this because we're not making progress. Because you know, I have to say, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter really led a lot of companies to do some contemplation about whether where they were and how quickly things were changing and really think about whether they needed to do something more. And it's encouraging that so many have set targets. I mean, we'll see. Will the Supreme Court strike down those targets? Maybe. I mean, I'm not quite seeing how a case gets to them, but I, I suppose maybe it will. Well, let me, let me ask you uh, a, a question in a way to kind of um, begin to wrap us up here in a way. And if you were to think 15, 25 years down the road, uh, where do you think we'll be in terms of what have become more routinized corporate practices with respect to uh, diversity and, and inclusion? And how different, say, will that first figure, the opening figure of the book be uh, 20 years from now, given what you see as the dynamics at work? Well, I'm an optimist, so um, I have to say, if you look at the first figure in the book, it's kind of hard to be optimistic, but and my figure. But um, I'm an optimist. I do think that uh, there's a lot of social movement activity now. There's a kind of generational shift. A lot of people are recognizing that there's a problem. On the other hand, um, that movement has maybe helped to spur a movement on the right against all of this, um, which gives support to the likes of um, Ron DeSantis. Um, so I'm optimistic because companies have really 
started to focus on the problem and they're not denying that there's a problem anymore. Um, what makes me a little pessimistic is that the thing that most companies did in response to the resurgence of Black Lives Matter was to hire new diversity trainers. So they're kind of doubling down on what they've been doing for a long time. But publishing the numbers, there's no denying it. If you're staring at those numbers every year, at some point you ought to start feeling bad about what's going on. And that should induce some kind of accountability. So just a plug for the social sciences, what we... What we argue in this book, some of the things are n of no are no surprise to other social scientists because individual practices have been studied by lots of people. Um, so there are a bunch of studies of diversity of implicit bias training that suggest that it's probably not going to do anything. There are a bunch of studies of grievance procedures that show that they that through backlash they backfire very significantly. Um, there are a lot of studies of performance rating systems that show that they are not fair and that they're not likely to promote race, racial or gender equity. So there's now a big body of research that shows the ineffectiveness of a bunch of the things that that um, we, we're looking at in this book. And, uh, for example, I mentioned the Kelly and Moen book. There's now... A, a, fair number of studies of work-life programs showing that particular interventions like training the supervisors to let people use the flex time policies can be very effective. So I feel like on the social science side, if you're a manager or an executive who cares to know what works, it's easy to find now. And I think the, the one, the comparative advantage of this book is we look at everything that companies seem to have been doing over the last 50 years at once. And so we can sort out the relative effects of different things. And if you had if you had a, a half a million dollars to spend, what should you spend it on? I think the book makes it pretty clear. But the research is out there. So if, uh, you know, we have we have evidence based movements in a lot of different disciplines. If we had if we had more evidence based diversity management, I I think uh, we, we would have a bright future. Well, that's great. That's absolutely terrific. Well, let me thank you, Frank, for uh, taking part uh, in, in this discussion. I've learned a lot from reading the book. I recommend it very, very strongly to everyone, including those of us working in university settings, uh, to learn what really does matter. So let me recommend to you all again, Getting to Diversity, What Works and What Doesn't by my colleague and friend, Frank Dobbin, and his co-author, Alexandra Kalev. Thank you, Frank. This has been great. Thanks so much for having me, Larry. <laughs>